Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Drew Brady here along with Bobby Beaulieu, Frank Davis, and David Schechtman. We are your behind-the-knife subspecialty team in vascular surgery from the University of Michigan, and we're looking forward to discussing interesting vascular surgery cases and papers with you all. Today we have a very challenging case of an infected aortic graft. This is somewhat the bane of our existence in vascular surgery because there really are no simple solutions to aortic graft infections. Historically, treatment for this was quite morbid, and a thoughtful approach and thorough understanding of the different options is necessary to minimize the risks. In vascular surgery, we use a lot of different grafts across the entire body, and from time to time, we see infections of all of these. We're going to begin with a review of some of the basics of aortic graft infections, discuss risk factors, patient presentation, and workup, and then we'll go into our case and discuss the different treatment options with a review of the data and some thoughts on our general approach to these patients. So Frank, why don't you kick us off with a bit of an introduction? Why do we care about infected aortic grafts? Yeah, thanks, Drew, and I appreciate you bringing up this topic. And as we all know, aortic graft infections are one of the most devastating complications we can see here in vascular surgery. And historically, these were uh, aortic infections in general and the primary aortic infections were usually caused by such things as salmonella or syphilis. But as we in vascular surgery have started to reconstruct the arterial system and mainly the aorta with open reconstructions, we're seeing more and more aortic graft infections from our open reconstructions or even our endovascular reconstructions. And the true incidence of graft infections from an either an open reconstruction or an endovascular reconstruction is really difficult to establish because of differences in both the definition graft materials as well as the follow-up. And a lot of series were done before the endovascular error and thus outdated. However, more contemporary studies suggest that the incidents are ranging from 1% to 6% of our overall operations, but approximately 4% in general. And the real reason we care is because that these are very morbid complications, and oftentimes to reconstruct a patient who has an aortic graft infection, it requires an extensive open surgical repair. And this can definitely be devastating to patients who had a prior endovascular repair and these patients have typically received an endovascular repair for some reason, such as their medical comorbidities. This is not surprising that these patients that have an endovascular aortic infection typically have a poor long-term survival. So Bobby, why don't you talk about the patients that get graft infections and who's typically at risk for those such cases? Yeah, you bet, Frank. Thanks for that. So the majority of prosthetic aortic graft infections probably occur as a result of bacterial contamination at the time of original graft placement. So that would make you think that endogenous skin flora like coag negative staph are the most common. In fact, studies have demonstrated that at least 15% of patients undergoing aortic surgery have methicillin-resistant staph aureus or MRSA strains identified on the skin preoperatively. Patients with diabetes, obesity, uremia, malnutrition, and those that are immunosuppressed are probably at higher risk, and that's a not insignificant portion of our vascular population. Additionally, postoperative wound complications, when you think cellulitis or seromas, lymphocytes or hematomas, those patients seem to be at higher risk too, which stresses the importance of 
um, good hemostasis at the time of the original operation. In patients who distal anastomosis involves the femoral arteries, the groins are at a higher risk for infection than the abdominal portion. And, and certainly wound breakdown in the groin should be a cause for concern that the entire graft can become infected. When we see patients who have had an EBAR and therefore the external portion of the aorta remains intact, you know, really it's secondary catheter manipulations either done to treat an endoleak or even bacteremia that can transiently result from dental procedures. You know, we don't have a ton of data that would allow us to make strong recommendations about perioperative prophylaxis for patients who are undergoing dental procedures or genitourinary or respiratory tract infections, but the SVS right now recommends that patients who are undergoing invasive dental procedures, which um, involve breaking of the mucosa, should probably get antibiotic prophylaxis in advance of their procedure, whether they've had an open surgery or surgical repair or an EBAR. Um, Drew, so we've taken a look at some of the patients that are at risk, and obviously there's a ton of our, our patient population, so we need a way to separate out who is a patient who's gotten an aortic graft infection, who's not. So how would you go about working up some of these patients and how they typically present? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Bob, and definitely. So, yeah, I think the tough part about this is that these patients really can present uh, fully across the spectrum and, it, and in each end of the spectrum. And some patients uh, will present with really mild symptoms or even kind of have this found incidentally with uh, CT scans or um, or kind of other imaging modalities. While the, on the other hand, some patients present as true extremists, um, those with aortoenteric fistulas, for example. So, you know, I think that patients with a low-grade infection can oftentimes just present um, quite indolent and uh, they can present late after their graft implantation and, and might just have mild symptoms or really no symptoms at all. And then those with high-grade infections can present more acutely um, and really have uh, symptoms more like sepsis, fever, abdominal pain, graft thrombosis, septic emboli, and even hemorrhagic shock. And so when we look at studies of, of these kind of patients, studies looking at infected intergrafts suggest that it's kind of a third, a third, and a third. About a third of these patients are going to have kind of a chronic septis, sepsis, low-grade infection. A third of these patients are going to present with acute sepsis. And then another third of these patients are going to present as an aortoenteric fistula. So I think really to, to answer your question to start with this, you really just need a detailed history in, in physical exam. Um, and I think when talking to these patients, it's really important to figure out what kind of repair they had in the past, because we do know that patients uh, who've had an open repair, as, as, uh, when compared to an EVAR, are going to have a, a little bit higher risk of an aeroenteric fistula and might uh, have a higher you know, chance of presenting as an extremist, like we were talking about. And I think, obviously, lab work should be obtained and blood cultures should be sent. I mean, it's really important that if you have um, any concern for this at all, um, that you get a high-quality CT angiogram. Uh, there's a meta-analysis from the European Journal of Master and Endovascular Surgery, which suggests that CTA has a sensitivity of about 67% and a specificity of, of 63%. So it could be a quite, quite a useful imaging modality for these folks. Um, and I think, you know, when, when you're looking at the CT scan, kind of buzzwords or things, things to think about and look at are, are perigraft inflammation um, and the presence of an abscessed or perigraft fluid or gas. And that's a really sensitive marker there that the graft around the gap or the gas around the graft rather. Um, and then really in some patients, you might be able to see an anastomotic leak or a pseudo aneurysm. So really CT using that, you can really get a good view of the extent of the graft infection 
And, and you can also get an idea of the other rel relevant anatomic details that you may need when you're thinking about how to reconstruct these patients. And, and really what we mean are, are, are special things we're looking at are coexistent occlusive disease, you know, RP or pelvic abscesses or adherence to the duodenum or the colon that might think, you know, how, how do you think about an aortic fistula? Other imaging modalities, well, well, we don't really use it here as much at University of Michigan, but MRI um, uh, could be used, but it's really not been kind of as studied and as evaluated as extensively as CT. Um, however, there are some studies that do show it has some good positive and negative predictive values. And I think some other helpful options, and, and we certainly use these quite a bit and our folks when we're working them up are, are PET CT scans or really tagged white blood cell scans, which, which can really help you kind of localize any inflammation uh, to that graft area if you're not sure if the CT's uh, kind of unclear. And then I think all these folks, you should really be getting some ADIs to determine if they have significant um, occlusive disease, if you're unsure about that. And then if you're thinking about using a vein conduit, which we're going to touch upon later, then you definitely need to vein map the deep and superficial system for both of these patients. So now that we've got a good understanding of why we care about these infections, who's at risk, and how these patients present, Dave, why don't you get us started with the case we have today? Yeah, thanks guys for that great overview. And Bobby, definitely important to hit on those topics of how these grafts get infected. So our patient's a 79-year-old male with history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease with a prior bypass, colon cancer that he underwent a hemicolectomy for, incisional hernia repair, with mesh and EVAR about 10 years ago. And he originally presented to our clinic with a type two endoleak, and that's how he got into our system. For us, our first steps for him were treating his type two endoleak, which we did with embolization. After the embolization, he returned to our clinic for a CT scan. And we found that there was an abnormal appearance of the periaortic tissue in the region of the stent graft. There was also an abnormal soft tissue density enhancement right at the proximal neck. Based on this, we really focused his history on was he having fevers, chills, any back pain, or fatigue. He was largely asymptomatic. So we did a laboratory workup, including white blood cell count, which was in normal range, but he did have a left shift. We also had inflammatory markers measured, which did show an elevation in his ESR and CRP. To further work this up, we got a CT scan with tagged white blood cells, which showed enhancement around the proximal aortic graft. Bobby, Frank, how do you think we manage these patients? What's your general approach and what's the strategies that you take? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I mean, I think for, for aortic infections in general, but specifically this patient, they're very difficult to manage. I think first and foremost, when I think about it, it's establishing the proper diagnosis. So as Drew pointed out, whether that's imaging or labs to determine your infectious source or infectious etiology and what portion of the graft is fully infected. And then you have to think about how can I eradicate that infection from an operative standpoint? And then last, but probably most important is how can I then reconstruct the entirety of the arterial system to provide normal perfusion to this patient and allow them to continue on? So when we think about the reconstruction portion of that overall workup, there's kind of, I'd say, three major things you can consider to how to best reconstruct the arterial system in an aortic graft infection. There is in situ reconstruction or inline reconstruction. There's extra anatomical reconstruction where you build a graft outside of the infected plane and then take care of the infection at a later time. Or in, unfortunately, in some patients who are extremely medically high risk, there's just conservative management and antibiotic therapy. 
And because of the complexity of these cases, as well as because of the complexity of the patients themselves, there's no true consensus guidelines that either the Society of Vascular Surgery or any other large journal has put out in terms of how best to manage a specific infection in a specific patient. But if we go through each of these reconstructions, I think it's important to point out for not only us, but also our listeners, is how we can understand these reconstructions and the benefits and also the negatives of each reconstruction. So first and foremost for in situ reconstruction, and again, that's inline reconstruction, this operation typically involves an open operation, resection of all the infected material, both the graft, the aorta, the surrounding fat or muscle tissue in the area, debridement, and then reconstruction of the arterial system. Within here at the University of Michigan, we commonly employ a refamp and soak Dacron reconstruction. And what that is, is we take a Dacron graft, soak that in refamp and antibiotics for at least 30 minutes prior to implantation, and then use that for our inline reconstruction. Yeah, so, so I've got to interrupt there because I've always wondered why we use refampin specifically. And I remember asking this question as a medical student and now as a resident multiple times, and I never felt like I got a great answer. So I really have been reading a little bit more about this, and, and I'm quite interested to, to share what I found. You know, I think the first and foremost for rifampin, it's, it's popular for a few reasons, but, but mainly it's got broad spectrum activity. So obviously that's going to cover against the staph species that we were talking about earlier and some other organisms that may be infecting the graft. And I think the nice thing about it and why, why it's really helpful in grafts is that it does not redistribute rapidly into the systemic circulation. And that's because of its hydrophobic nature. So it's going to hang around on the graph for quite a bit, which I'll talk about in a second here too. And I think another um, kind of interesting tidbit that I found is that it's really rare that we use this as an antimicrobial agent. I can't remember the last time on rounds that I suggested to the attending that we start rifampin for one of our patients. And so I think that's, um, you know, really pretends to a lower prevalence of drug resistance for this as well. And so it turns out they're actually using it uh, for more than the reason that it's just, we like the color orange. Um, and as a fun fact, I have been asked by one of our attendings in the OR how long we need to soak the graph for prior to using it. And the answer to that is 15 minutes. And that's based off a study, um, uh, an animal model study where they showed that the absorption of refampin to graft surfaces typically occurs within 15 minutes. And then also in that uh, study, they showed that the bactericidal concentrations of the drug reside in the graft for at least 48 hours afterwards. So it's not distributing rapidly. So anyways, I thought that was just some fun information to share. Um, is there anything else that we can use besides refampin, Frank? Yeah, great points on the refampin, Drew. And I think that's kind of important to take away. Yeah, there's other options for insight to reconstruction. If you think about prosthetic um, for insight to reconstruction, there is a silver-coated or impregnated Dacron grafts that can also have antimicrobial properties from that. Um, but beyond the prosthetic option, there is also cryopreserved um, arterial or venous aspects that can be used to reconstruct from an insight to process. And, and last but not least, I think not necessarily as much here at the University of Michigan, but at other centers both here in the United States and across the, the world, there is an option to use tubu tubularized bovine pericardium, where you take a bovine pericardium patch that's quite large, wrap that in a tubular structure, and then make reconstruct the aorta in that manner. So that's what I'd say is kind of your main options for in situ reconstruction, but from a, either a prosthetic standpoint or even using a cryopreserve. But I know there's also autologous options that I think, Bobby, you, you, you know a lot about and have done these before. Yeah, I know. So thanks, Frank, for mentioning that. And it's not necessarily something you want to become known for, but the <laughs> neoaortoiliac system in which you use the patient's autogenous deep vein is also an option. 
for listeners that are interested in it, I would refer you to Dr. Claggett's paper that has a basic drawing of all the different ways you can configure this reconstruction. But the idea is you basically take the deep vein from both legs and you use that to um, be your in-situ conduit for reconstruction because it's incredibly resistant to infection. It's also resistant to aneurysmal degeneration and seems to have a pretty high patency rate. In the reports of its initial use, there's uh, excellent 30-day mortality and, and the overall survival at five years was pretty admirable um, with only 30% of patients dying and that's pretty awesome for a group that's very sick at baseline. I'll be honest though, and it, you know, in my hands and a lot of people's hands, it's an operation where you take down the clock and put up a calendar because it takes a while to do and you need to make sure that the patient's fit enough to undergo an operation that's going to take four or five hours longer than you would if you did a graft because you have to harvest both of the, the veins from both legs. There's also the concern for leg swelling that can result afterwards. And while the initial reports, again, did not have high rates of limb-related complications, most of these patients will be at least in some sort of compression for the six months to a year afterwards, if not, if not lifelong. There's also the option for extra anatomic. And in this case, what you're really thinking is a ligation of the aorta below the level of the visceral vessels and then a axillary to bilateral femoral artery bypass. And, and you may ask yourself, well, what's the benefit of this? You're still having to go in the abdomen. And really, these are the patients where you see a CT scan and you recognize that the graft is infected, but the infection is not limited or isolated to the proximal most segment of the graft. You see some inflammation surrounding perhaps the kidney arteries, or you see it surrounding some of the takeoff of the SMA. And you know when you get in there and you attempt to sew your proximal anastomosis to that level, you're going to be at pretty high risk for a wound breakdown. So you're talking about now either doing a supercelia clamp with visceral segment bypassing and then to the bilateral iliacs, which is a, that's a pretty tall order, or trying to live to fight another day in which you ligate below the level of the renal arteries, you ligate above the level of the bifurcation, or if you're removing an aorta biliac graft at the level of the distal iliacs, and then you you go ahead and reconstruct in an axillary to bilateral femoral artery configuration. In the setting of infection, the patency of this has not been commonly explored. And you could you could maybe make the argument that an infected graft that certainly goes to the groins to begin with, you're going to have a very high risk of recurrent infection. So a lot of these are rifampin soaked, but um, these tend to be the long PTFE grafts, so they don't really keep rifampin as well as, as you would have your Dacron grafts. But Overall, the patency has been seeming to be reported better and better with these 8-millimeter ring PTFE long-segment axe bifem grafts. I mean, in young patients, you're still probably going to run up against the clock for how long that's going to last. But if you're dealing with a young patient who's had an aortic reconstruction already, either open or endovascular, and gets an infection, long-term patency should be a consideration, but getting them off the table at their index operation from which you're removing the source of infection is probably what should be at the foremost of your mind. And that's certainly what, what I tend to think about with this. And so, you know, you have two extreme options that are really reserved for cases in which you're either going in situ with the patient's autologous tissue, that NACE procedure, neo-aortoiliac system we talked about, or you just don't think they're going to get off the table with that and you do a ligation of the aorta below the level of the iliac. The final thing I'll say about the extra anatomic bypass is the one other benefit it gives you is you can stage it. You can do your extra anatomic bypass first, make sure they do okay with that, and then bring them back and do a do a exclusion and, and take out that old bypass graft. And so that's um, some of the really helpful things. If you are going to do an extra anatomic, I would also say 
find a piece of momentum, plop it over your stump that you're doing there and doubly ligate if you can, because the reason you're doing it is you don't think it's great tissue to begin with. And so you don't want necessarily to have an aortic blowout, which would certainly be a, a fatal complication of all this. And so I think we've pretty exhaustively reviewed a few of the different options. There are obviously one-offs that you have to do sometimes endovascular coverage for an affected aortic area where you don't really think the patient can survive at all. But Dave, why don't you tell us what, what y'all did for your case and how it ended up? Thanks, Bobby. It's a great review from everybody. I think it's important to point out that selected high-risk patients with multiple comorbidities may be best managed with the conservative option of suppressive antibiotics. I know Frank mentioned it, but a lot of times these are sick patients and long-term suppressive antibiotics may be a safer option than taking them back to the OR, even when you have a problem sitting in front of you that you're like, this requires a surgical repair. When you do the conservative management, this should be tailored antibiotics. So based on your local microbiome or antibiogram, and then also if possible, trying to get a percutaneous um, fluid sample that can be sent for culture and then very specific tailoring of the antibiotics to that patient's graft infection. Going back to the case, for our patient, we took him for an open explant of his prior endovascular repair and then reconstructed using our FAMP and SOAP Dacron graft. So in this case, we used a transabdominal approach, which meant going through his prior abdominal meth, which also makes you worried because he has additional prosthetic that's being exposed to this infected field. So sometimes you consider things like a wound protector to help keep that material separate from your working field while you're dealing with the infected tissue. Additionally, once we got down, he had a graft of suprarenal fixation and a lot of disease at the renal os. So after we opened up the aorta and were working on taking out the endograft, we attempted to use a 20cc syringe to retract the suprarenal fixation. This was really densely adherent into his renals. Uh, so we just elected to cut the proximal fixation of his endograft. When you ask for a wire cutter, the first thing the scrub tech's going to hand you is the sternal wire cutters from the CT set, but those are really hard to get down into the aorta. So one option that we used that I found was really helpful was the ENT or OFS wire cutters. They're small, they're much easier to get in that confined space, and they do a great job of cutting the graft. The rest of this patient's graft was grossly infected and definitely not adhering at all to the surrounding tissues. So it retracted from the aorta relatively easily. We divided the aorta uh, just below the renals and used a suprarenal clamp since we knew he had the suprarenal fixation. And then we were able to clamp the iliac arteries distal to where the endograft was at. After getting out all the infected tissue, we irrigated and actually found that he had had a PAU or penetrating aortic ulcer right where this infection was that was tracking directly to his IVC. So he was really close to having a rupture of his aneurysm secondary to this infection. We cleaned out all the necrotic tissue, irrigated the field with three liters of saline, and then implanted our rifampin-soaked Dacron graft. After getting that graft in, we made a pedicle to mental flap and wrapped the entire graft in a 360-degree fashion with this omentum so that you have good vascularized tissue 
covering all of the omentum and protecting it from the rest of the abdomen. After that, we ensured we had good flow, which we did, and worked on closing the abdomen. At this time, we took out the wound protector, now that the infected field was essentially removed, and closed his abdomen. He did well after the surgery, and we've seen him back in clinic, and has no evidence of infection, and his inflammatory markers are improving. Thanks, Dave. That sounds like a really tough case. I'm sure that was a long day, and uh, I hope you had a big breakfast and extra coffee before that one. So post-operatively, this patient's going to need quite a bit of resuscitation. He's obviously going to have a prolonged recovery. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear he's doing well. So how do you approach, you know, assign this patient out to the ICU and, and send this patient out to your kind of intern or inpatient team? And, and then for, for in regards to resuscitation, and, and how do you approach his antibiotic coverage uh, post-operatively too? Yeah. So going to your first question, how do I sign this out to the ICU? I grab a cup of water on the way over first. Uh, it's been a long day. And then I tell them, you know, a few things. One, this is a aortic aneurysm repair. So they had a big surgery. They're going to have fluid shifts. They're going to need ongoing resuscitation. I want them to guide their resuscitation based on his base deficit, his urine output, his lactate, and expect all of these things to trend better over time. These patients also have a SERS response or an inflammatory response to just opening up this infection. So the bodies worked really hard to wall this off, and we just blasted through all of that. So similar to any other surgical patient where you open up an infection, you can see fevers, you can see hypotension, you can see tachycardia, and you have to balance the resuscitation with their lungs working and kind of keep a close eye on that. We do broad-spectrum antibiotics for these patients, including antifungal coverage um, after the case. And we'll keep them on those broad-spectrum antibiotics for six weeks. Now, we did send tissue from both the endograft fabric and his aorta for culture. Uh, in this case, nothing grew out of that culture, but that's not uncommon in patients that are on suppressive antibiotics before surgery as well. So in that case, we work with our infectious disease colleagues to come up with the best antibiotic plan we can and then plan for six weeks no matter what grows out. Okay, awesome. Thanks. That that's a really nice overview and, and a really interesting case. And I'm I'm really glad that patient's doing well. So as a quick recap, we've reviewed the incidence of aortic graft infections, risk factors for aortic graft infections, uh, the patient presentation, the relevant workup, and the surgical options, including extra anatomic bypass and in situ bypass, and uh, kind of a, an overview of the different conduit options and also the option for conservative management. We've discussed uh, kind of relevant uh, intraoperative technique and then obviously some postoperative considerations. And we've really kind of compared some of the differences in the management of these uh, graphs. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you found something that you can take away from this and apply to your practice, even if you're not a vascular surgeon. And thanks for listening. We look forward to uh, um, speaking to you guys next time. And until then, dominate the day. Dang, man, I thought I was going to say that. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.